This morning, I'd like to continue our sermon series, St. Luke's on Broadway, by looking at Matilda the Musical. You know, every year we try to choose a musical that we know our children will enjoy. And this year, the musical is Matilda because our children have been putting it on presentations here in the theater at the church. And, and it's just really such a good, good time. So many important messages. There was Roald Dahl, Roald Dahl, who wrote Matilda. Roald Dahl, his parents were actually from Norway, and he was named after a Norwegian polar explorer. They moved to England, that's where he was born, and in the end he, he wound up um, growing up in the Lutheran church, speaking Norwegian at home with his parents. His father was a very successful ship broker uh, to the point that they were very wealthy. But then his father died young when Roald was just three years old. But it left his mom, uh, the wife, very well off as well as the children so they could get the best of an education. And that's why they had moved to England in the first place because Roald's father wanted his kids to have a great education and he felt the best you could get was there in England. When he was eight years old, he was in school and along with another group of boys, a small group, they created what they called the, the Great Mouse Plot of 1924. What it was about was there in the city, there was a sweet shop. And it's where everybody would go for all their sweets, their candies. It was run by an older lady who was just meaner and vile and rotten to the children. And so they decided to create this mouse plot in which they got a dead mouse, slipped it into the store, and there they went and put it in a jar of globstoppers. It's gum, it's jawbreakers as we would call them. But they put it in there and then snuck out waiting for this lady to go and get some of these globsloppers to get it out for somebody and see the mouse and scream and be suddenly shocked and afraid, which is exactly what she did. But she figured out who did it. And so it was, these boys were brought up before the headmaster there at the school, and they were caned for what they had done. I mean, they literally were beaten. It was a part of the way you hand out punishment in 1924 in the schools there in England. Rawls never forgot it. He had no idea what was still in store for him, though. When he turned 13 years old, he went to Ripton. Ripton was a very um, fancy boarding school, very prestigious. It had been started back in 1550. I mean, the school was almost 400 years old. And so he was fortunate enough to be able to go to this school, he thought, and then he discovered that those who were 13 and 14, the lower classmen, well, they were really hazed by the upperclassmen they had to wait on them. They were their servants. I mean, they were treated terribly. And they were beaten by the upperclassmen and beaten by the headmaster, literally to the point that some of the students received injuries that would affect them for the rest of their lives. Raul Dahl's experience with school and headmasters and adults begin to form ideas in his mind that you would see come out through his stories for all of his life. 
It was Ronald Dahl's daughter, Lucy, who several decades later would be sent to a very prestigious um, boarding school. And things had gotten a little softer. She and a couple of girls had snuck into the kitchen one night to get some ice cream, put it under their pajamas and bring it back to their room. And they got caught. And the headmistress brought them back to her office. And it was there in her office that she made them stand through the night all the way till dawn, holding the ice cream as it melted. Melted running down their arms, running down their legs. They stood there in that puddle of ice cream until morning while the headmistress sat in her chair and continued to knit. Well, it was these kinds of experiences that really helped Roald Dahl create these characters in his stories. He became known as one of the greatest writers um, for children's books in England's history. He would write the stories of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, which we know as Willy Wonka. He would write James and the Giant Peach. He would write Matilda. And in, in these stories, he would usually create adults who were the villains. Adults who were mean. Adults who were abusive to children. These larger-than-life characters. But he'd always create at least one adult who was a nice person to counterbalance that and stand up for the children. But it was the children who were always the heroes, the children who would be smart, the children who would sometimes have magic powers. Now he created these books, very successful, but he wrote his stories because he believed he wanted children to understand life isn't always fair. Life can be very hard. But you can rise above it. You are the one who writes your story. The story of Matilda is the story of a young girl who is born to parents who are very selfish and self-centered. They are not very well educated. Their favorite thing is to watch television. And Matilda comments how they always want to watch the telly. That's all that they do. And Matilda, well, she goes to the library. She loves books. And she is reading and reading. It turns out she is a genius, this brilliant kid. And now she's getting a better education with all this reading of books, far smarter than her parents. But she has a father who would say to her, Look, I'm big, you're small. I'm right, you're wrong. I'm smart, you're dumb. And there's nothing you can do about it. We all have had those people in our lives who like to tell us they're big and you're small. They're right and you're wrong. They're smart and you're dumb. We've all had those people. Well, that's the parents for Matilda. She's very anxious to be able to get out of the house and go to school, be able to make friends, have it with other kids and be able to enjoy being with them. She finally gets to school, and when she gets to school, it turns out <clears throat> the kids are great, but she has a headmistress for her school, and her name is Miss Trunchbull. And Miss Trunchbull is kind of this conglomeration of all these experiences 
that Roald Dahl has had. I mean, she is this big lady, tall, strong, athletic. She used to play track and field. Her sports? Javelin throwing. And the hammer throw. <coughs> That's her sport. Now, he gives her those skills because it's really a metaphor for her spirit. She loves to throw insults at people that hurt and cut deeply. She hits them with a hammer over the head. That's what she's good at, throwing the hammer, throwing the javelin. That's what she does to the children. That spirit that he is describing of this headmistress really is the spirit of the scribes and the Pharisees in our scripture lesson this morning. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees were the hammer throwers and the javelin throwers of Jesus' day. The scribes, their history went back 450 years before Jesus, back during the time that the people of Israel were in captivity in Babylon and were going back home now to Jerusalem. Nehemiah, Ezra, they were leading the people. And it's Ezra who reads the law to the people and they come to realize we have not been following the law. We've not been doing what we're supposed to do. So the scribes rise up to start looking at the law of Moses and in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and to start saying, how do you really live the law? For instance, one of the big ten you shall not work on the Sabbath. Sounds simple enough. What is work? How many steps can you take? How much of a load can you carry? Not work on the Sabbath? What does that mean? As they began trying to interpret all these laws, they came up with more than 600 that you were supposed to follow if you were going to be righteous and follow the laws. That was from the scribes. The Pharisees, they came into being about 150 years before Jesus because the Greeks had tried to destroy the culture of the Jews. And so in response, the Jews, there were some who said, we are going to follow the law to the letter of the law. We're going to do it perfect. And so they became known as Pharisees, which means the separated ones. They separated themselves from basically the rest of the people so they could be righteous, do everything the law says to do. They were striving so hard. Now, there's nothing wrong with interpreting the law and striving to be as good as you can. But what happened? They became very legalistic. And as they did get better and better at following the law, they became very judgmental of everybody else. And so they started telling everybody else, you're not good enough. You're not being righteous. You're not doing what you should be doing. Like us, we know the law. The Pharisees were the lawyers trying to, you're not doing it well. And so it was that Jesus came and he began to address them. Now, you and I, when we think of Jesus, we think of this man who's so wonderful and kind and loving to all and for all three services, I've almost started laughing during the scripture lesson 
because you think of him so kind and so loving. And today, ooh, he tears into the scribes and Pharisees. You scribes, you Pharisees, you're a bunch of hypocrites. Let me tell you, you're nothing but a bunch of whitewashed tombs. I always remembered that when I was a kid, calling them whitewashed tombs. You see, if you're on a pilgrimage to go to Jerusalem, say to celebrate the Passover, can't touch a dead body or you're unclean. So if you've made this journey and you get to Jerusalem and you touch a tomb, you just blew the whole Passover for you. So they would go out and whitewash the tombs so people would see them, make them look nice, call their attention, and you knew not to touch it. So you're coming along and you see these whitewashed tombs and they look beautiful and you know they're full of dead bones. Scribes and Pharisees, you look so good, you're trying to follow the law and do it all, but you've forgotten what matters. You're nothing but a bunch of whitewashed tombs. You're full of dead bones. You look good, but you're full of dead bones. You see, Jesus really didn't have a lot of patience for self-righteous people. Jesus was very loving and forgiving to people who were trying and maybe failing. If somebody harmed Jesus, his, like nailing him to a cross, his response was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But if you had people of power who were treating other people who were weaker, badly, keeping them from God, he didn't have much patience with that. You brood of vipers, you're a bunch of hypocrites. No, he tore into them because that, he felt, was so wrong. We've all lived in a world where sometimes you're told you're not good enough, you're not righteous, you're not good enough to be loved by God. You have the scribes and Pharisees, the hammer throwers who want to hold you down. How do we deal with that? What do we do? It's what I want us to think about this morning. And I, I want us to go back and look at the songs that our kids are singing to us right now. Because I think these songs really tell us the message of the musical Matilda and I believe help us understand the scripture. And so I want us to look at three of the songs this morning. First of all, it's Revolting Children. Now the song Revolting Children, you know, it's kind of a play on words. Are the children revolting children? Are they bad is it revolted? No, they're talking about we're going to revolt. We're going to overthrow. And what they do in the musical is they all come together. They decide not to be afraid. They have a food fight and they throw all their food at the headmistress and she runs off and gets in her car and drives off and never comes back. These children were revolting. I read the words. Whoa, never again will she get the best of me. Never again will she take away my freedom. And we won't forget the day we fought for the right to be a little bit naughty. Never again will the choky door slam. Never again will I be bullied. And never again will I doubt it when my mummy says I am a miracle. Never again. Never again will I be bullied. And never again will I doubt it when my mummy says I am a miracle. Never again. To believe that you are special. 
to say I'm not going to take what all the rest of the world is saying about me. It's a revolution. Sometimes we forget that Jesus came to create a revolution. Not the revolution the people wanted and not what the Romans feared. The revolution where you create an army and you go out and you overthrow the Roman government there in Jerusalem and establish the kingdom of David's. No, not that revolution. It was a revolution of the heart and of the mind of the soul. To take what the world believed and turn it upside down and say, we're going to look at other people differently. That instead of looking at people based on status and are they male or female or rich or poor, instead of judging people on these things, the righteous and the unrighteous, are we really going to be able to look at one another and say, everybody has value? Everybody is a miracle of God? You see, it's why I love the story so much of Jesus on his way to Jerusalem and and all these important people around, they're having a theological discussion. And here come the mothers bringing the babies. Now we talked last week with a woman at the well, Samaritan woman at the well. Women were way down the social ladder in terms of importance. Children were right there too. They didn't matter. And so here they come bringing the babies and Jesus stops the crowd. And he says, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. To validate children, to say a child matters. To honor the mothers, the women who bring these children to Jesus. That was something just so radically different from what people believed and how they would act. The mothers and the children didn't have value to them. And Jesus stops them and says, don't push them away. Let them come to me. To such belongs the kingdom of God. Scribes and Pharisees, that's not how they would see it. No, Jesus wanted us to start looking at ourselves first so maybe we could be more graceful with one another. So that scribes and Pharisees who felt so righteous might remember, he said, Justice and mercy and faith. I love, I believe one of the most important stories in the New Testament is found in the book of John, the 8th chapter. It's the story of a woman who was caught in adultery and she was brought before Jesus. The law of Moses, all that's so important, it says that person shall be stoned to death. She's brought before Jesus and thrown at his feet. And they said, so what do you say, Master? They were trying to get him in a box. If he said, follow the law of Moses, then she dies and he doesn't look very compassionate. If he says, no, no, don't stone her, you're going against the law of Moses. And so they look at Jesus. He's kind of writing in the dirt. Finally, he looks up and says, let him who hath no sin cast the first stone. And I love this line in the Bible. It says, And they went away, starting with the oldest. Yep, those of us who are a little older, it doesn't take us long to remember how we have sinned. Longer to do it. 
Yes, they all went away. To be able to start treating one another differently and seeing each other differently without having to say, you're not good enough, you're not smart enough, you're dumb, you're wrong, you're bad. It's a revolution. Turning the world upside down. It's really different than our society today. How do we value, how do we judge the value of somebody? The amount of ways that we criticize and the things that we say about one another. Jesus called for a revolution. We're going to look at it differently. We're going to think about it differently. Only you can write your story. Secondly, a little bit naughty. Just because you find that life's not fair doesn't mean that you just have to grin and bear it. If you always take it on the chin and wear it, nothing will change. Even if you are little, you can do a lot. You mustn't let a little thing like a little stop you. If you sit around and let them get on top you, you might as well be saying you think that's okay. But that's not right. And it's not right. You have to put it right. But nobody else is going to put it right for me. Nobody but me is going to change my story. Lauren Ward said she believes that's the most important line in the whole musical. Nobody but me is going to change my story. Lauren Ward played the part of Miss Honey in the Broadway musical. And she said, that's what I believe everything hinges on, that understanding. Lauren is a really neat lady. She got to play the role of the one nice adult in the show. She's the one who's going to love on Matilda, and she's going to be the one who stands up for her and cares about her. Well, Lauren, her own personal story, it turns out that she uh, was in Follies back in 2001. She loved to sing, dance, perform. She said at that time she was single. She had dated a number of other people in shows, and it had always been a disaster. She said, I'm never doing that again. Never dating anybody that I work with. Well, now she was in Follies. Her director was a man named Matthew. Well, Matthew was very kind. They were good friends. One day she needed to go do something, but she had a dog, and she said, I've got to find a dog sitter. And he said, oh, let me sit with your dog. Her friends all came and said, do you understand? Matthew's into you. Not into me, we're just friends. He said, no, no, he wants to sit with your dog. <laughs> I'm telling you, he likes you. Well, it was such a shock, she had sworn she would never date anybody again she worked with. But he sat for her dog, and sure enough, he gave her his favorite book, and they started talking, and he finally told her that he loved her before he had ever kissed her. And when he professed his love, uh, just a few months later, they got married. They said, when you know, you know. He was from England. He was a director. And she was from New York, and she was performing, but she left and went with him to England for the next 12 years. They had three children. She had to kind of start all over again with contacts, no people. 
she performed a little, but mainly wound up being mother with their children, trying to be supportive of him as he was moving his career as a director. And then he got the opportunity to be the director for a new musical called Matilda. And it was Tim Minchin who wrote the music, who wanted to have a workshop. And he was just having people read through the different parts to kind of work on the storyline. And the only person they didn't have was someone to read the part for Miss Honey. And so she wanted to be supportive of her husband and said, I'll sit in and read her part. And she read the part for Miss Honey. And Tim Minchin said, you got the part if you want it. She wasn't looking for the part. And suddenly she was cast in a Broadway musical and she was thrilled. The rehearsals coming back to New York, starring on Broadway. She wound up getting a Tony nomination for her role. He got a Tony nomination for his directing. I mean, it got 12 Tony nominations when it opened on Broadway. And it was just so exciting. She was having a ball, but I watched an interview with her. And the interviewer was asking about all kinds of things and finally said, when you chose to get married and leave the United States and go live in England, did you lose anything? Did you give up anything? And she said, oh, yes, I did. And I found my life. It was a very conscious decision. A conscious decision. Sometimes you have to give up something to find what you want. That was a conscious decision. I had to give up something. I found what I wanted. You see, nobody but you is going to change your story. That's what you do. You change your story or you listen to all the voices out here, the scribes and the Pharisees, the Miss Trunchbulls telling you, you're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You're too short. You're too dumb. Whatever it is, you listen to all those voices and so you live a life that you really don't want to live. I believe it is Christ who gives us a vision of what we can be. I believe it is in Christ that you and I find the strength that we need to change our story. Third, when I grow up, it's a song you're going to hear in just a few minutes. When I grow up, you know, what kid hadn't said, you know, when I grow up, we all want to grow up. And it's such a fun song of what everybody wants to do when they grow up. But I love this line in it. It says, when I grow up, I will be brave enough to fight the creatures that you have to fight beneath the bed each night to be a grown up. I'll be brave enough to fight the creatures that you have to fight beneath the bed each night. To face your fears. We all have fears. And the fear, the greatest fear is that you and I are not good enough to be loved by God or by anybody else. Am I good enough to stand before God? Am I good enough to be loved by somebody else? You have the scribes and the Pharisees who are telling you, no, you're not. 
You're not following all the laws. You're not doing everything that is just right. Haven't you had those people in your life who've told you these things? And yet we believe that Christ has come to tell us, you are the miracle. Believe your mummy if she tells you, if not believe Christ when he tells you, that you are that special person created by God. And you will be given the power to change your story. It is Christ who comes to give us that vision. You are good enough. You know, the story when Roald Dahl wrote it didn't come out until 1988. That's when the book came out. It became very popular immediately. It was in 1996, though, when Danny DeVito decided to make it into a movie. And many of us have probably seen the movie, even though we may not have gotten to see the musical. And so the movie came out in 1996. It was in 2011 that Tim Minchin had written the music and now added it to the story and it became a musical opening on West End in London and then 2013 it opened on Broadway. And as I say, it was a smash hit earning 12 Tony nominations. Um, great, great show. But it was back in 1996, Danny DeVito created the movie. And do you remember who played the part of Matilda? It was Mara Wilson. Now Mara Wilson, you may remember, had actually already been starring in some movies. She started in Mrs. Doubtfire with Robin Williams. She was the little girl. And then Mara Williams played the part of Susan in Miracle on 34th Street. That's one of my favorite Christmas movies. Marsh and I watch it every year. Miracle on 34th Street. And little Mara Wilson is so cute playing the role of Susan. It's while she was playing that role of Susan that she received the script and was asked if she wanted to audition for Matilda. She was thrilled. Let me tell you why. Growing up, she had some older brothers. Her mom was asked one day, mothers took turns in those days, going to the school and reading books to the children. Well, Mara was only four years old. She wasn't in school. So she went along with her mother to sit at the back and just be quiet and let her mother read the book to the third graders. And the book that her mother chose to read? Matilda. As a third grader, she heard the story. And on that day, she fell in love with this character, Matilda. She just thought she was so wonderful. And then when her movie acting career began, she thought, that's the part that I would want to play someday. And out of the blue, Danny DeVito decides to create this movie, Matilda. She gets the script. She goes to audition with Danny. And he would later say, soon as I heard her speak, I thought, she has the part. So she got to play Matilda. Now, in the, mo in the movie, you have Danny DeVito and his wife, Rian, who play the parents. They're playing the selfish, self-centered, mean parents and so rotten to Matilda. And yet off the set, she said that Danny and Rim were the nicest people she could ever imagine. Bringing her to their house. She could come anytime she wanted, play. They were so kind to her, which turned out to be very important because it was that year, 1996, when she would turn eight years old that her mother developed breast cancer. It was very serious. 
when her mom had a mastectomy, Mara was there with Danny and Rim at their house. When her mother finally was able to come home from the hospital, of course, she was back home, and now it was nearing her birthday. She would turn eight. And she came home to her mom and she complained, you know something? They put out the call schedule tomorrow and they didn't have my name listed in my birthday. They always list people's names in their birthday. They didn't put mine down. And her mom said, well, you just can't make a big deal out of every birthday, Mara. Well, mom, are you going to make a big deal out of my birthday? She said, Mara, I, I'm taking chemo. I'm feeling sick. I'm so tired. Maybe not so much this year. And Mara said she went to bed that night feeling so badly. And when she got up in the morning, though, there was a note that said, go to the dining room and look for this. And she went to the dining room and then there was a clue that said, go to the, to the living room. And she went to the living room and there was a clue that said, go to the kitchen. And she went to the kitchen and there was a sack full of presents and balloons. And she said her mom had created a, a scavenger hunt and, oh, it was a big deal. And she was so excited and her mom drove her to the movie lot. And when they pulled into the movie lot, there were hundreds of balloons making this colorful arch above her trailer. And when she went in the trailer, there was all this American doll girl, all the different paraphernalia, all of them were gifts from Danny and Rim. And then that morning showed up Ben and Jerry's ice cream truck. And then at lunch, they had a big chocolate cake. And if you understand Matilda, you know it's all about chocolate cake. And they had a big chocolate cake. And then Danny let everybody go early off the set so Mara could go home and celebrate with her family her birthday. She said, that night, I never had felt more loved in my life. It would be the last birthday that she would celebrate with her mom. Losing your mom when you're eight years old, that leaves you feeling very lonely. Am I loved? She did a few more movies until she got about 13. And the audition opportunities kind of started drying up. And she really didn't understand why at first, and then finally she figured it out. She had always been cute, but when you're 13, you need to be beautiful. Cute isn't enough if you want to make it in Hollywood. She saw her friends who were fellow child actors who were still going. They were beautiful. And she said that was so hard to suddenly be told you're not pretty enough to continue to go on in acting. To be living without mom, to be struggling with one's sense of worth and am I good enough, am I smart enough, talented enough, and to really be told no. You know, whenever you read stories on the internet, you know, you come to the bottom of them and they always have the extra little boxes, all the different other kind of stories to try to keep you reading of the stories. One of them so often will say, where are they now? And quite often it'll be something like, look at the pictures of childhood actors and you won't believe what you see. And she said, I was always in that. Someone always had a very unflattering picture of me. 
and people would talk about how I was ugly. They would all start telling me, you need to do this, you need to do that, you need to lose weight. You need she said it was so hard for people to be lifting up your picture. and Look at these childhood actors. Where are they today? Oh, they're not good enough anymore. She really had to go through a period of trying to struggle and find her own self. What's my story? She would ultimately go to NYU. There she'd get a degree. She'd begin learning more and more about what does it mean to write and act on stage. And then the musical Matilda came out of New York City and she went to the musical. She went to the musical and she said the children were incredible. She said, when it came to the end, I jumped to my feet to give them a standing ovation. And then she wondered, I wonder if anyone will recognize me tonight. And she walked out of the theater and no one recognized her. But that night was an important night because she heard again the message of Matilda. The message, you are good enough. Only you can change your story. I will not let them put me back in a prison because of what they say. It became a critical night for her. And she said it was just a couple years later she was at her brother's wedding. And it was a big wedding there at a hotel and she's celebrating with her brother. And a man comes over to her and says, Are you the girl who played Matilda in the movie so many years ago? Yes, yes I am. He said, that's, that's my wife over there. She just lost her niece. She was so close to her niece. And her niece's favorite story that they shared was Matilda. She is grieving her death. Would you mind coming over and taking just a moment to talk to her? And Mara went over to sit down with her and they started talking and they cried and they laughed and they talked and it meant so much to both of them. And after that night, I want to read you what Mara would write. I will always remember the look on that woman's face and what Matilda meant to her. It was something I can and will always take pride in. It's moments like that which make me feel grateful. Meeting fans who say Matilda gave them hope. Seeing posts on the internet about how heartwarming it was to see a movie where a girl is celebrated for being smart and working hard. Matilda empowers people and gives hope to those who feel lost. Matilda showed those whose families didn't understand them that they could make it on their own. Nobody but you can change your story. We believe that it is through the grace of Christ that you and I don't have to listen to the hammer throwers, to the scribes and Pharisees who want to tell you you're not good enough and how unrighteous you are but to experience the love of Christ so that you know you matter. And it is Christ who will give you the power to change your story. It's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.
Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer. Amen.